John chapter 4, Jesus sat at a well and he spoke with a lady from Samaria. And he talked to her about water. And he mentioned to her about this water that would cause the person who drank it to never thirst again. And she said that she wanted that water. And she didn't quite understand what that water was. And as they continued their conversation, he mentioned to her about her husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And he said, you spoke rightly because you've had five husbands. And then she mentioned that there was a Messiah called the Christ that was to come. And he said, that Messiah of which you speak, I'm He. And then they began to talk about worship. And she began to talk about the Jews' worship here and the Samaritans' worship there and different things. And they get to verse 21 in John chapter 4. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mount nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. If one is to come to the correct understanding of what God desires when it comes to worship, it is absolutely necessary to know what He expects, right? We have to know what He expects if we're going to be able to present to Him what He desires. God doesn't expect anything from someone unless He tells them what He wants. He understands that His creation is not a creation of mind readers. And from the very beginning of time, people have offered God what they wanted to offer God, or nearly from the beginning of time, instead of what He asked them to offer. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, and we have that preserved for us, an account of two brothers. We have one brother who offered God of the the fruit of the firstlings of his flock. Of course, he was the younger brother, Abel. And then we had the older brother, Cain, who offered God the uh, the fruits of his labor from planting in the ground. He was a farmer. And of course, we understand the results of that. We remember the outcome. Abel's worship was was accepted by God. Cain's worship was not accepted. And of course, the outcome of that, we remember that as well. Cain became angry with God even after God gave him an opportunity to repair that problem that had happened as a result of his worship not being accepted. And instead of repairing that problem and doing what God asked him, he ended up murdering his brother. But the problem wasn't anything to do with what Abel did. It had everything to do with what Cain did. Cain wanted to give God what Cain wanted to instead of what God asked for. And like Cain, the world has more often than not rejected God's prescribed orders and given him what they want to give instead of what God is wanting. But what we learn in that account of history is that God accepts only authorized worship. He, and it's not difficult. 
Right? It's not difficult to understand what God wants. He's given that to us because He is a gracious, loving God who doesn't expect us to give something that He has not told us to give. I think it is imperative to understand He must be worshipped in His way. Anything else is a perversion. It's a perversion, and it is not acceptable to Him. The title of the sermon this afternoon is The Worship God Expects. God expects a certain kind of worship. Not difficult to ascertain what God wants. He's specifically told us what He wants. Paul said this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 Let's drop down to verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of God the uncorruptible God, into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things, verses 22 and 23. So what they've done is, or what they did, Paul said, they changed the image of God, meaning they wanted to worship God, they wanted to worship something, so they changed the image of God into something they could see, something they recognized, because God's a spirit. That's what Jesus said, right? God's a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so they changed God into something they could see with their eyes, into something they recognized, something that God had created, something they were used to seeing, and they turned Him into any manner of things, right? And of course, Paul spoke about the unrighteous offering invalid, invalidated worship to God. So it made it it made it vain. It made it worthless. And, uh, and, and it was in ways that he did not authorize. Now this reminds us of two very uh, prominent things that happened in the history of Israel. We can go back to Exodus chapters uh, uh, 32 through 34, right? We know that uh, Moses went up on Mount uh, Sinai. He received the uh, commandments. And in the process of time, after he was up there for 40 days receiving the commandments, we have the people, right? And they become anxious, and they're wondering where Moses is, and they're wanting to worship God. And so they convince Aaron, and Aaron tells a lie about it. And they convince Aaron to create an idol. So he says, okay, break off the gold earrings from your ears. And he collected the gold, and Aaron fashioned a calf so they could have something to worship. And it fits right into what Romans chapter 1 says. They wanted to worship God. Now, they couldn't see God. Remember, He is a spirit, so they can't see Him. So they wanted to visualize God in something they could recognize. And so they fashioned Him in the form of a calf, and that goes back to their time in Egypt. Something they could recognize. That was something the Egyptians would have done. Now, if you recall... Moses came down. He became angry with what they were doing, a righteous anger. anger. He threw the, the commandments down that God had uh, written for him on the stones. And do you remember what Aaron said? And oftentimes we overlook this, and I've been guilty of this. He said, we threw the gold into the fire, and out came the calf. Aaron lied about it, didn't he? He wasn't man enough to own up to the fact he made the calf. 
He said, we threw the gold in and out walked this calf. Come on. That didn't happen. That's that's the one thing that, that reminds us of this. And then we go forward into the history of Israel and we have Saul and David and Solomon. Then we have the divided kingdom, Rehoboam to the south, Jeroboam to the north, and you see Jeroboam was afraid. If the people went to Jerusalem and they worshipped God in a proper prescribed way, they would not return. Now never mind that God gave him the kingdom. God gave him the ten tribes to the north. He was still afraid he would lose that kingdom. So instead of allowing his people to go to Jerusalem to worship in the prescribed manner, he came up with a better plan. See, it always interferes with with what's right when a person comes up with a better plan. Sarah came up with a better plan. That caused problems, right? Adam and Eve came up with a better plan and on and on and on and on. So he said, I'm going to put a golden calf, one in Dan and one in Bethel. You go worship there and you worship the true God of heaven. And see how much better it is because now I've placed something in there you can visualize. You can look at it. And you can recognize that as something that is familiar to you because you see, you can't see God. Remember, He's a spirit. But this is something you're familiar with and we'll call that the God of heaven. You see, and that's 1 Kings 14. And he made Israel to sin by setting up those golden calves so he wouldn't lose his kingship. Now, if true and acceptable worship is going to be offered to God, we have to understand a few things. And let's begin with understanding the demand for worship. God demands worship. That's our first point. We have to understand that demand. Why would God even demand worship? Well, first of all, God has demanded it, and it is built within the person, His creation, to worship. There is an eagerness in everyone to worship. Everyone's going to worship. People will worship. There is an eagerness to worship, and history tells us. You can look throughout every civilization, every a person who has ever lived and they are going to worship something. You can dig up any culture and they worship, right? There is evidence for it. Even the individual who says, now wait a minute, I don't believe in a higher power. In fact, I am an atheist. And I believe there are far fewer atheists in the world than people would like to believe. I'm an atheist and I'm never going to worship a higher power. I don't believe there's any kind of a power out there beyond the person. I believe in evolution 100%. I do not worship a higher power. Listen, I think there are not very many people out there truly who truly believe that. But even if there are, they cannot stick to that because they will worship something even if it is themselves. That is known as humanism. They will worship the person. They can't help themselves. They will worship themselves, right? That is a religion. Humanism is a religion. It is a doctrine centered on human interests or values. Here's the definition to it. A philosophy that rejects the supernatural and stresses an individual's dignity, worth, and capacity for self-realization through reason. 
If I can reason it, if I can realize it, there's nothing higher than humanity. You know what that places a person? In God's position. Nothing is higher than me. I make all the decisions. Nothing is greater than the person. I am the highest life form. Therefore, nothing is greater than me. That person is to be worshipped. That is a religion, right? Jude 16 states the difference in humanism and Christianity. Now listen very closely to what Jude has to say. Humanists are this. Murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Have you ever listened to some of these doctors explain why this theory of evolution is a fact? Listen, it's not even a good theory. It's a hypothesis, really, is what it is. They call it a theory, but it's just a hypothesis. Have you ever listened to these guys talk about it? Swelling words and how you're ignorant if you don't believe it? This fits right into Jude 16. Not only are people eager to worship, they will engage in worship. Now here is the thing. You can worship, and it is worship, but it's not always proper. That's the thing about worship. There, is, there are two different kinds of worship. There is proper worship and there is vain worship. And Jesus recognized that that is the case. He said, in vain they do worship me. Teaching for uh, uh, commandments, the doc- teaching for doctrine, the commandments of men. So a person will worship, and it is worship, but it's vain worship if it's incorrect, right? So here's the thing: when worship is offered, wor- the worshiper is attributing worth to a thing or a person. That's the whole idea of worship, right? We are attributing worth. So if we worship God, we are saying God is worth worship. We're attributing worth to Him. That's the thing about humanism. If a, if a person is a humanist, there's nothing greater than a person, we, or that person is attributing worth to self. Nothing is greater than the person. Okay? Well, the Christian, the believer in God, even if, it's not a, even if the person is not a New Testament Christian, just simply a believer in God, they recognize God's worth, right? I mean, that's something to be respected. They recognize God's worth. Now, they're not worshiping properly, but they recognize that God is worth being worshipped. And uh, uh, we need to understand what God's people have always thought about coming before God in reverence. We can look back throughout the Bible, right? They would literally bow themselves down. Literally, bow themselves down before God. Notice what the psalmist declared, Psalm 44, verse 25. For our soul, he's talking about the person, right? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaveth unto the earth. Now, the idea of one humbling himself in the sight of the Lord was carried over into the New Testament. And the word worship here indicates a few things. It indicates obeisance, offering that, to prostrate oneself, to show due respect, 
All of those things. So we don't worship another person. And we look over into the Revelation, and on at least two occasions, when an angel appeared to the Apostle John, he fell down in worship, and the angel said, Wait, see here that you don't do that. See here that you don't do that. We're the same. See, only God is to be worshipped. But, again, just because someone worships does not mean it is done in accordance to the pattern set forth in the New Testament. Scriptural worship is composed of certain specific and prescribed activities. Okay, God has set those forth. In other words, there are certain acts or avenues that God has said, this is what I want. This is what I expect. Right? And He's been good enough to tell that to us. Uh, here's the thing, too. Proper worship will always appeal to the Spirit and not to the flesh. Okay? That's, that's one thing we have to keep in mind. Worship is not entertainment. Right? We're not to be entertained Does that mean we don't enjoy worship? No, that's not what it means. We we ought to enjoy coming together and worshiping together. Should we appreciate good singing? Absolutely. Absolutely. We ought to appreciate. Can we appreciate someone with a beautiful prayer and and it touches us? Absolutely. But what about, uh, have you ever been traveling and you go to a, uh, you know, a little old country congregation somewhere, like like perhaps maybe one I grew up at, and, you know, the singing could be a little better. But is that still worship to God, and should we go in there and worship God, and does God appreciate that? Yes, He does. Yes, He does. Think of it this way. When, when they offered sacrifice under the Old Testament law, and God said, that's a sweet savor, and I've used this example before, that's burning hair to begin with. Right? You ever smell burning hair? It's not good. In my opinion, right? On an animal, or really any kind of burning hair, it doesn't smell good. But if it's done properly in that worship system, God says a sweet smell or a sweet savor. God says it smells good, right? So you go somewhere, and they're, they're doing the best they can do, and the singing probably could be a little better. God says it sounds wonderful. Right? That's the idea behind it. We're doing the best we can, and, and God says, that's great. It sounds wonderful to God because we're putting forth our best. So proper worship will appeal to the Spirit. Now, one might ask this. When are we allowed or authorized to worship God, right? When can we do that? Well, we can worship God anytime we want to worship God. Anytime, any place that we choose, right? But here's something. We are commanded by God to come together on the first day of the week, Acts 20, verse 7, in collective worship, corporate worship, and on that first day of the week, there are two acts of worship that can only be done then. Those two acts of worship, and we talked about one this morning, the memorial feast. That's to be done on the first day of the week, period. Now, we're going to offer that here in a few moments. For someone perhaps couldn't do it. I don't see anyone, but but I don't know. Now, also the collection. Right? Taking up of the, the our means, our offering. Now, what about this? Can you give can you give some other time? I can give 
a donation to the church anytime I want to. How much ever I want to. But as an act of worship, I can only do that on the first day of the week as my regular budgeted money through uh, my regular process of giving on the first day of the week. Okay, what if I sell a piece of property and I want to give a portion of that, which, which I think personally I ought to. If I have something, I sell a piece of property or I sell a this or I do that or I come into something and I want to do that, that, that that's for the individual, right? And I say, okay, I want to give a portion of that. I can do that anytime I want to. Or I want to give a little extra. I can do that anytime I want to. As a prescribed act of worship, on the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, I do that on the first day of the week. I only take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. I can sing every day. I can teach and preach every day. I better be praying every day. Right? Those are the prescribed acts of worship. Now, we need to be mindful of that. We need to be mindful of that. Not only do we have an eagerness to worship, not only do we engage in worship, excuse me, God expects worship. That's the demand. That's the demand. Now, if we're going to worship properly, we have to understand that demand. Now, here's our second point. We have to have the proper disposition. See, we just talked about the truth. We must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's the truth. That's the doctrine. Let's talk about the spirit part. That's the disposition. My mindset, right? In spirit and in truth. A certain attitude must accompany the one who comes before God. If a person comes to worship God just simply out of a feeling of requirement, he does not have the proper desire. Someone says, Oh, golly, is it Sunday again? You know, I have to go up there again? That's not what David's attitude was. Notice what David said, Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. We talked about gratitude this morning. The true worshiper will have a profound gratitude for the grace that God has offered. And that will show forth through worship. We'll want to worship God. We'll want to sing a song that says thank you to God. Thank you in our prayers. Thank you in our songs. Thank you in our giving. Thank you in our memorial supper. Thank you as we sit and we, we listen to the things about the, 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 the account of the, the gospel. The things that the, 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 the apostles did. The things that the faithful did. That'll touch us and we'll be thankful for that. It's all about the gratitude, right? That's what the true worshiper does. A profound thankfulness, right? I think the Christian should always be asking himself or herself, What shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefits toward me? Psalm 116, 12. That should always be on our minds, right? And of course, I think the answer, part of it at least, ought to be true worship. True worship. Along with the proper attitude, the true worshiper will cultivate certain attributes. Certain attributes will be cultivated in the life of the Christian. Christians have always been a people of God's own possession. In fact, 
you recall how Peter described the Christian or the the the, the Christian, the church. Peter described Christians, First Peter two nine, as a peculiar people. Now, peculiar because they are different and set apart. Okay, for God's own personal use, and that's what that means. Just like the priests were, right? The priests of the old law were set apart for God's own use to do certain things in the tabernacle and in the temple to carry out certain duties. And, and we're different. We're different from the rest of the world. And that's what this idea of peculiar means, right? The faithful will not participate in practices that God does not see as acceptable. Whether, whether it's in worship or whatever the case may be. Particularly when it comes to worshiping God. Now, there are a whole lot of groups who advocate different rites and rituals that God has not advocated for. And we have to be very cognizant of that. Uh, proper worship can be offered uh, when we listen to what God says and when we follow His instructions. And we can understand that. He's given that to us. Solomon said this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we talked about what that fear is. Reverence, right? If we're willing to listen to Him, He'll tell us what we need to know. But fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1-7. I've talked to people before, and, and, I, and I've studied with them. I know you have too, and they'll say, you know, I just I, I, I have a hard time getting past your music. I agree with what you're saying, but, but I'm, I miss that, uh, uh, the music aspect of it. Well, God, God says to do it this way. A person will ignore what God says because they have a personal take. Look, I love instruments. I love instruments. I listen to uh, uh, instrumental music every day. Kathy probably gets tired of hearing it. It wafts in there. I don't know. I try to keep it a little bit low. I listen to classical music. But I don't use instruments in my worship to God. I'll do that in some other avenue. Because I want God to accept my worship, right? And I'm not going to allow my personal likes or dislikes to interfere with what God's likes and dislikes are. And that's what we have to understand, right? His word is the guide by which we live because in the words of the great prophet Jeremiah, O oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps, Jeremiah 10, 23. I'm not going to leave it up to me to come up with the right answer when it comes to what God wants. I'm going to listen to what God has asked for and then we'll follow his directives, right? Isn't that the way that we ought to do it? I think that makes probably more sense. Proper worship will not only allow one to draw closer to God in heart, but in daily life. And we need to recognize that. God will never accept the worship of someone who lives in sin, and that is the reason that God rejected Israel's worship. And so we have to understand how, how we get around that. Well, first of all, the person who's never obeyed the gospel, God does not accept that person's worship. If you've never obeyed the gospel, he will not accept that person's worship. The person who has obeyed the gospel and has fallen away, God will not accept that person's worship. Right? He accepts the worship of faithful Christians. 
That's what, that's what he's told us, and that's what he accepts. And it's not hard to obey the gospel, and it's not hard to maintain a relationship with God. Now, there are, it, it may be difficult at times, but he's given us the way. When I say it's not hard, what we mean is he has given us the process to maintain that relationship, right? He's given us that process. There's nothing secret about it. We have been given the answers to the test. And so that's, that's what we're talking about. Now I want us to notice our final point. Let's notice some departures from uh, the worship God has given us, from true worship. First of all, some congregations of the Lord's church have what is known as divided worship. And it's most common in uh, the form of children's church. Okay, children's church. They'll take the children during the worship hour and they'll take part of uh, the, the congregation and they will have a children's church. Do you know they'll have things like junior elders? They'll let the children hold positions like junior elders, junior deacons, and they'll take them off and they'll go to another part of the building while the worship hour is going on. Now, that is an assembly of only a portion of the members. Now we, we do not have any uh, we do not have any authorization for this for the assembly to divide up like that. Now we're not talking about uh, Bible classes that doesn't happen during the worship assembly. That's something that's separate, right? We have a Bible class and we have a worship assembly. Some congregations have a worship assembly, then have a Bible class. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about. Mothers or fathers going to a nursery because they can still participate in the worship service. Some people use closed-circuit TV or congregations do that. Some, some congregations have a room that have a, a, a glass and you can still hear and participate. Uh, that's what we have. So you can still participate in the worship uh, assembly. What I'm talking about is you grab up the children, you go to another part of the building, and you're separate. That's called a divided worship assembly. That is not authorized in the New Testament. How do we know that? How do we know that? Well, first of all, we have to assume a few things. First of all, if that is correct, we have to assume God didn't know what he was talking about. God didn't know what he was talking about. Because notice what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 23. If therefore... The whole church be come together in one place. What does that mean? The whole church. That's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? First Corinthians fourteen twenty-six. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together? As letter letter was written to the congregation. That's pretty self-explanatory. God expects the congregation to be in one group when it worships. Right. Uh, we have to assume that, that children must have been taken from the assembly during the first century. We have no reason to expect that. You remember the young man named Eutychus, Acts 20? He fell out of the window because Paul preached uh, till midnight. Notice something here. And they brought the young man alive and were not a, a little comforted. Now this phrase, young man, in the KJV and uh, the New King James indicates a young boy. When you do the words, they indicate a young boy. Okay? They were all together. He wasn't off in children's church somewhere. 
They were all there together. John also, in 1 John 2, 13 through 14, mentioned three different groups in the church. He mentioned fathers, he mentioned young men, and little children. John didn't write three different letters. We have no reason to think that they read this letter three different times to three different groups. There's no reason to indicate that. The writer of Hebrews said this, Hebrews 2 verse 12, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing unto thee. You know, you can't do that if you're in a different room apart from the group with small children. Having children's church. That's not possible, right? So, we're to come together to worship. We're to come together to worship. I think sometimes uh, we might underestimate our, our young people. We might underestimate our young people. If, uh, if our young people can sit in a math class and a science class and they can learn how to, to read and write, they can listen to a Bible and they can understand what God has to say. He's done that in such a way that they can understand that. Uh, not only do we have uh, divided assemblies that perverts God's worship, now let's notice some deviant music. Okay, that People have deviated from the way God expects us to have our music. Some have special singing. Some, sometimes they have one person singing. Okay, Sometimes they have small group singing or larger group singing like a choir. Okay, now, if we want to worship God in spirit and in truth, we have to ask, is that acceptable to God? It doesn't matter what an individual thinks. We have to say, what does God think about it, right? And since He regulated our worship in song, we can find out what He thinks about that. Let's notice what He said in Ephesians 5, verse 18 through 19. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves, that's plural. He wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. He wrote to the group about the group, right? Not to a portion of the group chosen to sing in a choir or the soloist who was to stand in front of the group, right? Singing to the congregation. Now again, when we're talking about worship, who is the audience? God is the audience. The congregation is not the audience. If you have a choir singing to the congregation, now we have turned the congregation into the audience, right? We are praising God. We are worshiping God. Everybody is to engage in that worship. All of us are to speak to each other in songs. See, we're worshiping God, but we're teaching each other by what we're saying. Right? That's what Paul said. And let the peace of God, Colossians 3.16, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, this is the sister letter, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We show forth our gladness and thanksgiving to God as a group. Now, this word singing 
is the word solo in the group in the Greek, and it means to pluck. Now, here's the argument someone's going to put forth. Well, it means to pluck. You're plucking an instrument. Well, here's the thing. In the Greek, you have to look at the construction of the sentence, and within the construction of the sentence, it gives you the instrument on which you are to pluck. That is found in the construction of the sentence. And what is the instrument? The heart string. Singing and making melody in your heart. It's figurative. You pluck the heart string, right? And that's what he's talking about. So, instrumental music is just a perversion in the worship. And at the same time, uh, God authorized singing. He didn't authorize the music. The writer of Hebrews said, Hebrews 13, 15, we are to offer up the fruit of our lips. That's what he expects. Now, someone says this. Well, he didn't say we couldn't do it. Well, God doesn't have to say we, we uh, can't do this or can't do that. He simply says what we can do, right? Uh, he didn't tell Cain he couldn't offer a grain sacrifice. He didn't tell uh, Nadab and Abihu uh, of Leviticus 10 they couldn't offer this fire or that fire. He simply stated what they could offer. And so... When they didn't offer what he stated, they found out the hard way what the problem was. Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire. That means they offered fire that God did not say they could use. And he punished them with fire, uh, with death. Uh, he told uh, Noah, use gopher wood. He didn't give a list of don't use pine, don't use oak, don't use maple, don't use this and that. He said use this kind of wood. That's called uh, uh, the, the law of exclusion, right? We see that in Hebrews 7.14. Uh, the writer of Hebrews said, For it is evident that our law, that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. He didn't have to say that uh, Levites and priests come out of the tribe of Ju- uh, uh, Levi. Not Judah, not this tribe, not that tribe. He didn't, all he had to do was say which tribe from which they come. The law of exclusion, right? Now, here's another argument that we need to be aware of. Well, they used it in the Old Testament. Well, first of all, we don't live under the patriarchal law. We don't live under the old law. Aside from that, who authorized the old the music? Who authorized the instrument in the old law? Did God authorize the instrument under the patriarchal law? Did God authorize the instrument to be used under the old law? For 400 years, the instrument was not used until David came along. Until David came along. David is the one who instituted the, uh, the uh, instrument. We read Amos 5, 21 through 23. We read Amos 6, verse 5. Uh, God called the instrument noise. He called it noise. Notice 1 Chronicles 23, verse 5. It was David who said, Moreover, 4,000 reporters and 4,000 praised the Lord with the instruments which I made, said David, to praise therewith. God never authorized the instrument. That was David who did that. Uh, it's recorded in Second Chronicles 29, verse 25, And he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to the commandment of David. 
David did all of that. He instituted the instrument. There is no provision in the book of Leviticus for worship of God using the instrument. Again, for 400 years, the instrument was never used in worship to God. David instituted the instrument. Right? I think great blessings result from proper worship. Can we enjoy proper worship? We need to enjoy it. We need to enjoy it. We need to be eager to do it. We need, it's demanded. It's demanded. We need to be a part of it. We have to have the proper disposition. And we do not need to deviate from what the, uh, the prescribed avenues of worship are. It's not hard because God has given that to us. And worship will strengthen the Christian as Christians participate in worship. It is a blessing to be a part of that, right? Uh, you know, it, and, and it, benefits, it benefits the worshiper. Notice what God said in Psalm 50 verse 12. He said, If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. It doesn't do anything for God other than the fact that He appreciates it and He's demanded it and, and He appreciates the fact that we're faithful, but we need God. God doesn't need us, but it's helpful to the Christian to worship, right? Worship also encourages other people. Worship encourages others. The Jews were to meet in one tabernacle and one temple so they could be encouraged. It's the same thing with, with Christians. When you sit next to someone and they're singing, it encourages it encourages the person to sing. If you're sitting next to someone and they're paying attention to a Bible class, or and I'm not saying the Bible class is worship, what I'm saying is if they're paying attention in worship, uh, it, it helps someone else to encourage to be to pay attention, right? Uh, and at the same time, if someone is not and they're, uh, uh, you know, they're reading their favorite novel, or they're on their phone, or they're doing this or that during a prayer, or during the Lord's Supper, or something like that. That's distracting, isn't it? That's distracting. We don't need to distract our brethren. We need to focus on that, right? And it promotes unity when we are all focused on the same thing. Worshiping and assembling promotes edification for all. And that's why it is so vital for us to come together, right? If you have need to answer the Lord's invitation at this hour, uh, if you have to come, if you need to come back through repentance and confession and prayer, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.